Well, Martinique Island is uh, an island in the Caribbean Sea. It's a few islands south of Puerto Rico, just to kind of put it in your mind. And the year was May of 1902, with a beautiful large bay where the waves are almost perfect, the colorful vegetation and this tropical paradise. Martinique at that time was really the playground for the rich all throughout Europe. Uh, they would come there and spend their holidays there in different times of the year. Well, this particular late spring season in 1902, there were 12 big ships from Europe docked in the bay. While the passengers were on shore celebrating with all manner of debauchery and revelry, well, two Canadian missionaries arrived about that time in Martinique, hoping to spread the gospel among all these pagan vacationers. And as they tried to get off the ship, the immigration officer asked them what they intended to do on the island. And they said, well, preach the word of God. Well, that's the last thing that the officials on the island wanted because it would interfere with all the sinful activities of these revelers. And so the immigration officer told them, oh, you're not going to step foot on our, on our land. You stay put on the boat, and when it pulls out of the harbor, you uh, pull out with it. Meanwhile, on, on land, the people were given to drunkenness and gross immorality, openly scoffing and blaspheming anything re remotely Christian. In fact, they even sacrificed a pig in a cathedral as a mockery of the crucifixion of our Lord. Well, when that happened, almost immediately, the tall mountain, Palais, overlooking the bay, started to smoke as though the volcano was going to erupt. It had been inactive in historic times except for two minor insignificant eruptions in 1762 and 1851. But the people obviously were concerned, so they sent scientists up to investigate whether it was going to erupt. And the report came back unanimous. It was as cool as ever. There's no danger. So once again, the music and the revelry broke loose. And then three days later, the Canadian boat pulled out of the harbor with those two evangelists on board. And they had just passed the three-mile mark when the whole side of that huge mountain blew out and in 60 seconds covered the entire city like a fog with glowing incandescent particles. It uh, was the worst volcanic eruption in the 20th century. Only two people survived that catastrophe which wiped out the entire capital city. And those were prisoners who were in solitary confinement, held in the deepest dungeon of the city. And one of those was a preacher, by the way. Ash from the volcano fell on islands 125 miles away, where the natives had to stand in their fields and beat out fires set by the flying cinders that fell. And even the boat carrying those two young missionaries was burning from stem to stern when it reached the next island of St. Lucia. Well, I have no idea whether this event was a direct act of God in punishment for the sin of those islanders, but we do know that it's possible. We do know that based on God's word, God hates sin. Sometimes sin brings immediate, swift, divine, and even supernatural consequences. I think it's a mistake when we look at every natural disaster or every major event that occurs and say, oh, this is God directly doing something. But we do know it could be. 
And we're going to look at a passage this morning that explains how we know that. Well, about 161 years before that volcanic eruption in Martinique, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who was a leading revival preacher from the Great Awakening, traveled throughout New England in our own country, proclaiming the wrath of God against unbelievers and the need for the free gift of eternal life in Christ alone by faith alone. Edwards, like those two Canadian evangelists, proclaimed, quote, Let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and flee from the wrath to come. His most famous sermon was preached on July 8, 1741, and was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it pleaded with the lost, those who don't know Jesus, to receive the free gift of eternal life, to trust in Him to recognize their sinfulness and their need for a Savior, and to come empty-handed to the cross and say, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. I trust you, Jesus, and what you did for me in payment for my sin as the only one who can save me. Well, definitely, we know there's an urgency about proclaiming the gospel so that those who don't know the Lord can avoid hell. But this morning we come to a passage in our study through Hebrews that reminds us there's also an urgency about calling sinning believers to repentance and into back, into, back into right fellowship with the Lord. Nothing can ever change our identity in Christ. Nothing can ever change our position in Him if you've trusted in Christ. You're a part of the family of God. But you better believe God will not be mocked. And He will not be mocked by believers and He will not be not mocked by unbelievers. I think what we need today in this day and age is more preaching against sin. Sin is a, a real problem. God's holiness and righteousness demand that sin have a consequence. For unbelievers, as Jonathan Edwards taught, that consequence involves an eternity in separation from God in a literal place of torment called hell. But there are also consequences for sin in the life of believers and it too can be severe although we never have to fear eternal judgment jesus says once we've trusted in him we've passed from death to life and shall never face eternal condemnation but that doesn't mean that sin isn't serious as we continue this uh, walk through the book of hebrews we come uh, this morning to the fourth of five warning passages you've heard me talk about those we've already looked at three of them Back in chapter 2, we looked at the danger of neglect. In chapter 3, we looked at the danger of doubt. In chapter 6, we looked at the danger of apostasy. And then today, here in chapter 10, we come to the fourth, and that is the danger of deliberately abandoning the Lord. Now, there are some parallels between the warning in chapter 6 and the one we're going to look at today, but these warnings, as the writer gets closer and closer to the end of his letter, get more and more intense. There seems to be a, a higher note of urgency and seriousness about them. And then we're going to get to the fifth and final warning passage when we get to uh, chapter 12, which is the danger of indifference. But I'm calling this the danger of deliberately abandoning the Lord. And I, I chose the title Believers in the Hands of an Angry God as a nod to Jonathan Edwards, but kind of a different a spin on it, because we're dealing with believers, as we shall see in just a moment. So the question before us is, can believers 
willfully and persistently sin against God, turning their backs on Him, rebelling defiantly against Him, and do so without consequence? That's the question. And as we shall see, the resounding answer is no. You can't. You can't do that. The key verse in this passage is verse 31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Later on in his letter, the writer is going to put it this way, and this passage actually comes in the midst of that fifth and final warning passage when he says, Our God is a consuming fire. As we've seen, and hopefully as you've seen and appreciated throughout this series, uh, the writer uses several different arguments and logic and appeals to reward and emotion and Old Testament principles and so forth to try to get the attention of his readers who in 67 AD, roughly give or take a year, were facing intense persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero and were, because of that persecution, contemplating making a willful, defiant decision to turn their back on the church, turn their back on Christianity, and revert back to the safe haven, that comfort zone that we talked about recently, of Judaism. And what we're going to see is it's a very serious thing to do that, to willfully, volitionally, intentionally, with forethought and disrespect, thumb your nose at the God who saved you. As Asaph wrote in Psalm 67 about God, you alone are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you're angry? So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to follow the same outline that I've used for the first three warning passages as we look at this section, which is the fourth warning passage. We're going to look at the caution, the concern, the consequence, and then the cure. Let's start with the caution. The caution is, as I said, do not deliberately abandon the Lord. You know, believe it or not, some Christians actually do this. It's more common than you might think. Now, for those of us sitting here in church today who are part of a Bible-believing, well-grounded church, uh, who study the Word, saturate ourselves with the Word of God, are around other believers, are feeding the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, not after the flesh. I mean, it, it might seem unthinkable to completely abandon Christ and the church. But Christian history is replete with stories of men and women who've defected from the faith for all sorts of reasons. When the injustices of life come your way, when life throws you a major curve, who's to say whether our faith will remain strong? And there are a lot of Christians who are shipwrecked, who for one reason or another, something happened and they said, enough. Now, thankfully, the Bible is clear that even if we are faithless, He remains faithful and He can't deny Himself. So we never have, as I said, to worry about our eternal destiny. We can have the assurance of eternal security right now, the moment we've trusted Christ. That's not in question. But while we live out our days, if the Lord tarries His coming and deal with the, the realm of this temporal realm of time, space, and matter, uh, it's possible to kind of go to the point where you make this conscious decision to say, I'm done, I'm done with the Lord. Some of you in this room might have contemplated that. Some of you might have already done it, and by God's grace, 
the Lord Spirit of God convicted you and you're able to turn it back around and now you're walking back with the Lord again. But that's the caution. Don't deliberately abandon the Lord. Look at verse 26. If we sin willfully. Well, what is this willful sin? Before I answer that question, I want to take just a second here to show unequivocally that the author is definitely referring to Christians here. Because a lot of bad theology has been built upon this passage suggesting that this is talking to unbelievers or people who thought they were saved but really weren't. But in any event, a lot of people suggest this passage is talking about hell-bound individuals. It's not. And it couldn't be more clear. In fact, let me give you at least seven undeniable clues from the text that show this is talking, he's talking to believers. First of all, he uses the word we. And we cannot refer to any other group of people in the context than the readers and the author himself. And only believers can be carried along by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. So if he's part of the group, they've got to be believers. And then he says they've received, received, this is the second clue. Uh, the word received, here's the word lombano. It means to actually take possession of. It's the same word that's used in John 1.12 when it says that as many as received the Lord become children of God, were born into the family of God. So we know they're believers for that reason. The third reason we know they're believers is the reference to the word knowledge here. It's the, it's the word epignosis, the word for full knowledge, as opposed to just gnosis, meaning general knowledge. Uh, epignosis is only possible for believers. Only believers can have full knowledge. Then if we skip down to verse 29, the fourth reason we know this is speaking to believers is because he uses the word sanctified. He targets The, the targets of this warning are those he says have been sanctified which is in the aorist tense, meaning it's a past event with a continuing, completed action. As I've pointed out several times, whenever the writer uses this word sanctified or sanctification, it always refers to our positional sanctification. In fact, as we looked at over the last couple of weeks, twice earlier in this very chapter, he describes them as being sanctified through the sacrifice of Christ once for all in verse 10. And in verse 14, he says they've been made perfect forever through the Spirit's sanctifying work. So he's talking here to believers. The fifth reason is when he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36, the Lord will judge His people. God's people are believers. You're not God's people if you're not a believer. And then six, the writer refers to the targets of this warning as having been illuminated illuminated, which can only apply to believers who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Greek word illuminated here is the same exact word that's used in Ephesians 1.18, which speaks of believers whose faith in the Lord Jesus Christ resulted in them being, the New King James says, enlightened, but it's the same word translated illuminated here. Clearly believers. And then finally, number seven, the writer refers to the targets of this warning as those who have, quote, an enduring possession for themselves in heaven. So there is no doubt that this is a warning to and for believers. Now let's go back to verse 26. What is this willful sin? The word willful, first of all, is used only twice in the New Testament. Ekousios is the word, ekousios actually. It means deliberate, intentional, willful. It's a pretty simple word, pretty basic word. 
Uh, I thought it was interesting. It's also used twice in the Old Testament. Now remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but around 285 B.C., uh, when uh, Alexander the Great took over and the Roman Empire was in force, you had the Old Testament Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, the language of that day. And so sometimes we can kind of get a sense for a Greek word's usage by looking at the Old Testament. And this word, ekousios, is used, for example, in Exodus 32, when they were uh, building the tabernacle out in the wilderness of God. And you see it says, Then Moses called every gifted artisan in, in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. The Greek translation of that verse uses that word ekousios. In other words, the emphasis is on the willingness of the people to of their own choice, intentionally, deliberately participate with their own labor and hard work and materials. In fact, the text goes on to say the people brought so many materials, more than enough, that they had to be restrained. They really wanted, intentionally, to help with building the tabernacle. They were fully absorbed in it, is the idea. And then the only other place it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is by King David in Psalm 54 when he says, I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. That word freely is again, ekousios. And uh, it's the idea here is that David would provide a free will offering. I'm going to come back in a second to this notion of of offerings, but these were sacrifices that were offered voluntarily by devout believers of their own free will. So if we go back to the text, if we sin willfully, the idea here is that the, this sin was something they were doing completely, intentionally, with forethought, with deliberation. And in the context, as we've seen so clearly throughout the last 10 chapters now, they, this was turning away from God defiantly. It was making the decision that I'm too afraid of, the, of the, the persecution that I'm going to face under Rome. So I'm going to turn away and I'm done with Christianity. That's the willful sin. So what the author is concerned with here, as he has been throughout the whole letter, is with this defection from the Christian faith. It's a serious problem. Now you might be thinking, you know, all sin is deliberate in a manner of speaking. But the writer here, as he frequently does, is thinking in an Old Testament context because he's talking to Jewish believers. These were devout Jews who had gotten saved, many of them on the day of Pentecost or since then, and they had converted. So their frame of reference was Judaism, which is why that was a comfort zone for them, and they were thinking about reverting back to it. And in the Old Testament law, there were, and we'll come back to this in a second, it clearly prescribed the consequences as being different for sins committed unintentionally versus sins committed intentionally. So that's what he's getting at here when he talks about this willful sin of defecting from the faith. So that's the caution. Do not deliberately abandon the Lord. Why? What's the concern? Well, the concern is you'll bring shame to the Lord, among other things. You'll bring shame to the Lord. If we skip down to verse 29... He, said, he talks about trampling the Son of God underfoot. This defection from the faith is described in the harshest possible light from the writer's perspective under the inspiration of the Spirit. An apostate from the faith has trampled the Son of God underfoot. He's 
treated as an unholy or common thing, the blood by which he was saved. We've talked a lot about the blood. We've sung about it again today. And again, in the Jewish culture, that was a big thing. That they were surrounded by blood. It was a significant thing. And the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, had taken away their sin. And they were quite uh, uh, taken by that. And so when he says, if you do this, you're considering that nothing. It's just like a jar of water or something. And then he says they've insulted the Spirit of grace. In other words, the Holy Spirit who originally wooed them to Christ, convicted them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and, and, and led them to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, they're insulting Him. You know, the writer has spent so far the whole letter, ten chapters, proving again and again that Jesus Christ is superior to everything Judaism has to offer. So essentially what he's saying here is, why would you want to do that to the one who gave his life for you? That's the concern. You're going to bring shame to the Lord. Well, what's the consequence? The consequence is you will face serious discipline. Serious discipline. Skip down to verse 28. We'll start there as we make this case. He said, anyone who rejected Moses' law died without mercy. So the writers frequently making reference to the Old Testament law. That was their comfort zone, as I said. And under the Old Covenant, if an Israelite spurned the Mosaic law willfully, and at least two or three witnesses verified that action, that was, they were put to death. I mean, that, that was a capital offense. That was the consequence. Look at Numbers chapter 15, for example. You shall have one law for sins, uh, for him who sins unintentionally, and then he goes on to say, but for the person who does anything presumptuously, that is intentionally, he shall be, it would be a reproach to the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Cut off there is a Hebrew idiom for die. It's death, right? So he says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose? What the writer is arguing is that if defiance to an inferior system, the old covenant that he's already shown is obsolete, then what about defiance to this new and permanent way that was opened up for us through Christ? A system which, as he's made clear, is far superior. I mean, wouldn't that be even worse? And the answer can only be that the punishment will be substantially greater than it was. Just as there's no defense against you know, deliberate rejection of the Mosaic law. It carried a mandatory death sentence. Similarly, there's no defense against Christian apostasy. So look at what he said. Go back to verse 26. If we sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now here's the rub. This is the verse that sets people off on a tangent and completely miss the point of the passage and come up with a false interpretation. When we read this verse, we immediately think of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God who's taken away our sin. But to a Jewish audience, and in the context here, he's referring to the various offerings that were common in Jewish daily life. See, they had things like burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings, like the thank offering and the wave offering. All of those were had pleasing odors that were offered in various situations. And then there were more... Uh, sacrificial offerings for sin that were sort of expiatory. Uh, they were seeking relief for, for punishment from wrongdoing. 
Yet there were some sins, as we just saw a second ago, that were there, there was no excuse for and could, there was no offering that could provide relief for. Death. You, you, nothing you could do. There's no appeal, right? And the writer in that context is making the same point about willful departure from the Lord. If you do that, there, there's no animal you can bring, no payment you can make, no offering you can give, nothing to compensate for that. It, it's going to bring discipline. Don't do it. That's what he's saying. Again, we read this and we read all kinds of things into it. Heaven, hell, eternal life, loss of salvation. That's not at all what he's saying. He's just saying, look, if a Christian willfully departs from the Lord, there's, no, there's nothing you can do at that point. Right? You're going to receive God's serious discipline. He says, what, hap- what you're bargaining for is a certain fearful expectation of judgment certain fearful expectation of judgment. And then he, he goes on to talk about the fiery indignation. Now, for some reason, any time we see the word fire in Scripture, our minds immediately go to what? Hell, right? And, and it's crazy because there are so many passages where God is referred to with the metaphor of fire that have nothing to do with hell whatsoever. And there's no justification whatsoever here to assume this is hell when hell is never even mentioned. And we've already shown you seven reasons that he says these are believers, including himself. So unless he as a believer thinks he's in danger of hellfire, this cannot be fire. But fire is often used of God's discipline in Scripture, like the refiner's fire, or simply of God's presence, like the pillar of fire by day in the wilderness. This is a reference to the anger of God over sin and the fact that he's going to bring a consequence for it. We could look at several examples of this. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the passage we read today was a passage that refers to the Bema judgment, that is the future time of reward or loss of reward that every believer will face after the rapture, before we enter into the kingdom. And Paul describes the Bema judgment here this way, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, built on the foundation there of Christ, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But of course, he himself will be saved. This isn't a matter of heaven or hell. It's a matter of reward. And we could also look at uh, the writer's words earlier in Hebrews chapter 6, the previous warning passage, where he uses an extended metaphor of the earth. And he says, The earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But guess what? If it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected whose end is to be burned. In other words, when you have all these weeds and vines and things that are coming up and strangling your crops, you get you uh, weed them out, cultivate them out, and then you toss them in a burn pile somewhere. Again, he's not talking about hell here. He's just talking about the fact that there's no, no use for them at that point. And then we can think of Jesus' words in John 15. Uh, the very night that he was betrayed in the upper room, he tells the disciples, look, you need to abide in me. In other words, I'm about to be gone. You need to, through the comfort of the Holy Spirit, you need to stay close to me in the coming days because it's going to get tough. And indeed it did. They all were all ultimately martyred. But he, he says, if you don't abide in me, then he's cast out as, see that word as there? That's a figure of speech called a simile, using like or as. It's not talking about literal branches here. He's just using this as a metaphor. 
Same thing that the writer of Hebrews does in Hebrews 6. Jesus says, he's cast out as a branch and withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire. So we've got to stay close to him. We've got to stay in fellowship with him. Just as a branch uh, that comes disconnected from the vine is not going to be receive the nourishment and the, the peace and the hope and the relationship, the fellowship there with, with the branch. The same way is true of believers. If you don't come to church, you don't read your Bible, you don't fellowship with other believers, you don't pray, you're not going to be in fellowship with the Lord. And by the way, it makes you more susceptible to such willful sin as defecting from the faith when life gets tough. Remember what we said earlier. The writer describes God as a consuming fire. So this fire that he's talking about is not hell. It's just a reference to God's discipline. Uh, later on, he's going to say in the same context of Hebrews 12, 29 that you see on the screen there, that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges his son, all those whom he receives. That's just part of the Christian life. There are consequences for sin, consequences for all sin, but this particular sin that he's warning against is a pretty big one, and it brings pretty big consequences. Jesus himself told the church in Laodicea, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That's the words of our Lord, right? So serious discipline awaits those who willfully apostatize. If we go back to our text, you know, he says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose, someone who does this today as opposed to back in the Old Testament times, there are many forms of discipline that can fall on a person which are worse than immediate death. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet actually complains about this when he's complaining about the judgment that Jerusalem was facing in Lamentations. He says, the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people, that's Israel, is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom. <clears throat> he said they were overthrown in a moment. In other words, swift physical death can be better in some cases than certain consequences. And so the writer wants his readers and us to know that there are circumstances worse than death. We might also think of King Saul, who was spent his last days burdened with mental and emotional turmoil, that death itself was actually a kind of release for him. Right? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's the key. So that's the consequence. If you willfully apostatize, serious consequences indeed. So do not willfully abandon the faith. That's the caution. You'll bring shame to the Lord. That's the concern. The consequences is discipline. So what's the cure? Well, the cure is to remember the reward. Remember the reward. He's going to spend the rest of the chapter making that appeal. If we look at verse 35, he says, Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. And he says, You have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, because it's certainly not the will of God to abandon the faith, you will receive the promise. What's the promise? It's what he's been talking about. It's not heaven any more than the promised land was heaven for Moses. Moses did not get into the promised land. Remember, he died on the opposite side of the Jordan. But he's in heaven today, obviously. And those who didn't believe and trust God for those 40 years didn't get to see the milk and honey. right? And similarly, those believers today who give up the faith 
will not receive the rewards that are coming. Jesus said in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. He's got rewards for us who persevere and endure. And that can't be heaven, of course, because he says it's based on your work, and we know the Bible teaches you don't get heaven based on your works. Paul put it this way, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. That reward of the inheritance, that's not heaven. It's talking about what we get when we get there, the inheritance in heaven. It's the same thing that the writer used in Hebrews 10 here in verse 34 when he talked about you have an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Remember, the writer's point is that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. These believers needed faith. They needed strong faith. They'd already had faith in the gospel. They'd been saved. But now they needed to live by faith, to walk by faith, to trust God, no matter what the circumstances. So if you go back to verses 32 and 33, another effective argument that he makes here is to remind them of the courage they displayed in past trials. He says, recall the former days. I mean, he, he, his readers knew what it was like to stand their ground in the face of suffering. They knew what it was like to be publicly shamed and persecuted. And also, by the way, to stand with those who were facing those trials. That's what he goes on to say in verse 33. They'd shown sympathy with those who had been imprisoned and suffered. Uh, in fact, they, some of them had suffered the loss of property, as he goes on to say in verse 34. They had been encouraging to them. So they would do well to recall that steadfastness that they had in the past now. And then he sums it all up in verse 39 with returning to the, the first person, we. Remember, he started out, if we sin willfully, comes full circle, but we are not like that. We're not of those who draw back to perdition. And again, if you just read this in English and you're inclined to bring your interpretation to the text, you're going to say, wow, perdition, that's hell. Saving the soul, that's heaven. Uh, the Bible wasn't written in English. Perdition is just a word that is apaleia, it can refer to temporal negative consequences or eternal, depending on the context. Uh, but here it's clearly talking about temporal negative consequences. He says, we're not like that. We're not going to turn our backs on the Lord and receive negative consequences. We're going to believe to the saving of the soul. And again, the Bible wasn't written in English. Soul does not have to refer to the eternal part of man. It can refer to the temporal part of man. I've in our Wednesday night study, I've shown you dozens and dozens of passages in the New Testament that clearly use the same word, it's the word psuche, to refer to the, the temporal aspect of man, our life, basically. And that's what he's saying here. Uh, our lives will be better off if we steadfastly trust the Lord. So remember the reward. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, as he's going to say in chapter 12. So the caution, do not deliberately abandon the Lord. Why? You'll bring shame to Him. What's the consequence? You'll face serious discipline. So what do we need to do? Remember the reward and hold fast and hold fast. Now, I have no idea, as I said, whether the island of Martinique experienced the fiery discipline of God more than 100 years ago. But I do know that it's possible. God hates sin. In fact, God hates sin so much that He sent His only Son to die and pay the penalty for it. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, then you're still under that penalty. And the only hope is to place your faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done for you on the cross. 
and let him give you forgiveness and eternal life. It's a free gift. All you got to do is trust him for it. But if you've already been saved by trusting Christ, then remember the words of Asaph. Who can stand before God when he's angry? It's a fearful thing when a believer falls into the hands of an angry God. So keep trusting God. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I wanted to share the quick story of this missionary to Thailand back from the mid-1900s, last century. Her name was Miss Hammer, and she faced all kinds of obstacles in her work, and like so many missionaries, very few visible results, despite her steadfastness. Her confidence was in the Lord, however, so she refused to yield to the despair. Miss Hammer's only desire was to, quote, plow out her furrow for God, she would say, no matter how stony the field or how difficult it might be to sow the seed. Well, in 1962, this gallant servant of Christ suffered a cruel death at the hands of a heroin addict. And in her last letter to a friend, she quoted a poem which not only told of the great trial of her faith, but revealed beautifully her steadfast determination to keep on serving God without flinching or retreating, even in the face of overwhelming odds. These words are a touching commentary on a life completely dedicated to the Lord no matter what the cost. Here's what she wrote. My hand is on the plow, my faltering hand, but all in front of me is untilled land. The wilderness and solitary place, the lonely desert with its empty space. The handles of my plow with tears are wet. The shares with rust are spoiled, and yet, out in the field, ne'er let the reins be slack. My God, my God, Keep me from turning back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this warning. As difficult as it may be to hear, it's one we need to hear. Because, Lord, as things get tough, all of us may at times contemplate turning our back on the one who saved us. May it never be, Lord. And, Lord, we pray if there's one here who's never embraced the free gift of salvation by faith, that today that would be the starting point. That a new life would begin by simply trusting in your Son and our Savior. And that walk of faith and that journey of faith would thus commence. And Lord, we pray all of this in his precious name. Amen.